0: It's philosophy talk. I created it. I made it with my own hands from the bodies I took from graves, from the gallows, anywhere.
1: Bodies for sale. Treating people as commodity. Tonight on Who Cares, we examine the
2: frontiers of surgery, and with us is the international financier and surgeon, Reg LeCrisp, and his most successful patient to date, the elephant, Mr. George Humphries. <coughs>
1: Is selling body parts an offense to human dignity? What was Mr. Humphrey's reaction to the transplant of the elephant's organs? Surprise, at first, and then later shock and um, deep anger and resentment. Our guest is Deborah Satt, author of Why Some Things Should Not Be For Sale, On the Limits of Markets. Think of it, the brain of a dead man, waiting to live again in a body I made with my own hands,
0: with my own hands. Bodies for sale. Coming up on Philosophy Talk, after the news.
1: Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the
0: studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, bodies for sale. Can the buying and selling of vital organs is illegal in most developed countries, but there is a thriving global black market in body parts. Should the buying and selling of organs be legalized and brought into the above-ground economy, or is there something inherently wrong about treating the body and its parts as mere commodities?
1: Well, John, there is certainly a huge pent-up demand for body parts. In the U.S. alone, according to the National Kidney Foundation, over 95,000 people are currently waiting for an organ transplant of of some kind or another, with another 4,000 being added to the wait list every single month. In 2006, more than 6,000 people died awaiting life-saving organ transplants. And of the 12,000 dying people who could have donated an organ, only about half actually do or did.
0: Ken, those numbers are just staggering, uh, and I'll give you some more. In 2002, the World Health Organization pegged the number of people suffering from diabetes around the world at 171 million. By 2030, the number will climb to nearly 400 million, many of those folks will be prime candidates for kidney transplants.
1: So we've got a huge global demand for bodily organs and an inadequate global supply of donations. Is it any wonder that there's a thriving black market? Legend has it that a healthy kidney can fetch up to $150,000. That's a mighty tempting number. Doesn't that suggest that if there were an open, legal, well-regulated market in bodily organs, the supply problem would just disappear? And we might do a lot in the meantime to alleviate third-world poverty.
0: Well, Ken, before you rush off to Iran to sell a kidney, I want to tell you that legend and reality don't always match. The $150,000 price tag is just an Internet myth. Numbers like that are thrown around, but, but the reality is quite different. In places like the Philippines or Iran, where buying and selling of organs is not against the law, the price for a kidney is pretty low, a couple thousand dollars at most. It's true that the black marketeer will take that kidney and charge maybe $90,000 to their Western client, but hardly any of that money reaches back to the person who offers up the kidney for sale.
1: So you're suggesting that an open global market in kidneys might do more to enrich those who exploit the poor than it would do to help the poor themselves.
0: That's exactly right. Uh, As we say in philosophy, the situation is morally fraught with danger. Organ markets have great potential to exploit the poor and desperate around the world, turning their bodies into repositories of spare parts for the rich without doing much to improve their own lot. After all, not many middle- or upper-class Westerners are going to sell a kidney for a few thousand bucks.
1: And not many of the world's desperately poor are going to be able to afford to buy kidneys on any market. So that means that the burdens would fall disproportionately on the poor, while the benefits would fall disproportionately on the rich. Seems pretty upside down to the egalitarian liberal in me.
0: And, And we haven't even touched on the intrinsic yuckiness in thinking about your own body parts as mere commodities. Ken, you, you tend to be a Kantian. Doesn't the Kantian in you recoil, not to mention the kidney in you recoil, at the idea of treating your body as a mere thing, a tool to be bought and sold like any
1: other commodity? You know, Kant probably would say that the buying and selling of organs is inherently wrong. When you sell an organ, you're treating yourself as a mere means rather than an end in itself. And Kant thought you should always treat yourself and others as ends in themselves. But, you know, I just th- I think it's more complicated than Kant realized. When I sell my labor, for example, I allow my employer to treat me as a mere means. I-, I invite him to treat me as a mere means. If it's morally okay to sell your bodily labor, why isn't it morally okay to sell your bodily organs that make that labor
0: possible? Good question, Ken. Uh, It's one of the many that we're going to try to sort through with the help of our guest and colleague, Deborah Satz, who just completed a very nice book about what is morally permissible to buy and sell and what isn't. And we'd like our audience to
1: help us sort through these thorny issues too. The number to call is 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917.
0: But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Julie Napolin, talks to a bioethicist about the new practice of soliciting organs online. She files this report.
2: Here in the U.S., there's a system for deciding who gets organs for transplant. It's illegal to buy them, and it doesn't matter what your personal story is. You're put on a list and have to wait for organ donors to die. But a living person can donate organs.
3: The other way in which organs are distributed is through something called directed donation, and that's where individuals just basically say, We're gonna, I'm going to give an organ to X.
2: David Magnus is a director of the Stanford Center for Biomedical Ethics. He says if you share the same blood type as your loved one, you might be able to give them an organ you can live without, like bone marrow or a kidney
3: somebody donates a kidney to a loved one, that's the most common form of live donation. That that's again outside of the system of distribution, that's relatively fair. But the idea there is that it allows people to give or donate organs, especially live donors, who would not otherwise do this for people that they, they care about.
2: Magnus says the ethics of directed donation are tricky.
3: If you've got loved ones or close family members who you want to bring in for evaluation to see whether or not they are a potential match for live donors, we'll do that. But you can't solicit organs. Uh, No flyers being posted at your church. No public announcements. So solicitation of organs on that large scale is prohibited.
2: That's because recovery from having an organ removed is long and difficult.
3: It's a significant surgery, and people should not be doing this lightly. And from one point of view, in fact, the very early pioneers of organ transplantation opposed life donation, saying that this violates basic tenets, you know, above all, do no harm. So on its surface, we ought to say, no, we we won't allow people to do that. But it makes sense to say that although they don't medically benefit from donating an organ, there may be very significant social and personal benefit if they're giving an organ to a loved one.
2: Before the surgeon can go ahead with the transplant, an ethics committee made up of doctors and people like Magnus has to decide whether you are actually a close friend of the person you want to give an organ to.
3: One of the transplant surgeons said, you know, that everyone has to pass the bass fishing rule. You know, you have to have been bass fishing together for 40 years before you think about something like this.
2: So if you don't have a friend or a loved one wanting to donate an organ to you, do you sit on the wait list? Some people say no.
3: Taking advantage of the loophole that creates uh, directed donation, there are now websites that have been set up, um, like matchdonors.com, where uh, individuals basically say, you know, you don't know me, but uh, here, I, need a, I need a kidney. Here's who I am. Here's my picture. Please donate a kidney to me.
2: Here are some examples. Hello. Greetings to you and your family. I'm writing to you on behalf of my loving and dear mother who needs a kidney transplant. She's been diagnosed with kidney failure. We are praying for the magic of a lifespan provided by a kidney transplant. If you are the magician I have been searching for and you have typed... Please help me. I'm only 21 and I need a kidney to live. All I need now is a good-hearted person that
0: understands my situation and is willing to donate a kidney that will give me my life back.
2: Matchingdonors.com is sort of like Myspace or Facebook. Only instead of looking for a date, people are looking for organs. People who use it say traditional standards of friendship don't apply to our world of online social networking. Once again, David Magnus.
3: Over time, the opposition to this has been slowly wearing away. And in fact, in general, in directed donation, what we've seen is the gradual expansion from initially uh, restricting directed donation just to loved ones or people who are extremely close in the relationship to making those relationships more and more tenuous. And now we've got the ultimate extreme of being able to just essentially advertise online.
2: Magnus says it's very likely that payment happens under the table. More importantly, transplant surgery is dangerous and people can die. Medical ethics dictate that you take that risk only for someone you already care about.
3: It makes sense to allow people to make that kind of sacrifice for the people who are nearest and dearest to them. But as we sort of move that out to strangers who we meet on the web, um, at a certain point you wonder whether or not it's even possible for somebody to truly have informed consent and really understand the risks and yet do this for a stranger. And I don't want to say that it's impossible, but it certainly raises questions.
2: For Philosophy Talk, I'm Julian Napolin.
1: You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.